friends, welcome to our Sabbath School study hour here at the Granite Bay Hilltop Church. Thank you so much for spending your time with us here, investing your time into learning more about God, diving deep into the Word, studying this beautiful lesson that is based on the book of Ephesians. I'm sure that it will be a blessed time of learning and of spiritual growth. Before we start, I'd like to invite you to take advantage of our free offer. Our free offer today is called Saved from Certain Death. Um, if you would like this, uh, this study, this is a study about salvation. It's a great study. You could call the number 866-788-3966. And you could ask also for, well, if you call 866-STUDY-MORE, you'll ask for number 109. It's only mailed in North America and the U.S. territories. So if you're not in the continental North America, then you could text SH060 to the number 40544. You could get a link to a digital download. Or you could go to study.aftv.org slash sh060 and you could also get a digital, digital download from right there. So don't forget to take advantage of this free offer. Um, before we begin, before we start, I'd like to invite you to bow your head so we can say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, as we open your word today, um, I ask you to inspire our hearts, allow the human instrument to fall into the background of the message. Please, Father, allow us to understand your desire for our life, to understand that you have extended the gift of grace and that all we have to do is accept it. Lord, thank you for that. Please bless us now. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this lesson, I am really happy that I, I've been able to, uh, to be the one to study, to study it and to teach it because it involves one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, which is Ephesians chapter 2. Our memory verse this week's from, com, our, our memory verse, sorry, from Ephesians uh, today is chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, that says this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So today what we're going to be exploring is the theme of God's rescue mission. In the context of the great controversy, we see that God has decided to do something about it. He has, he has decided to step into our problem, step into our story, and to do something. You see, if there's one fundamental truth, is that sin was a human problem. As soon as sin invaded planet Earth, as soon as it was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, as soon as they fell, sin became a human problem. And since then, we have been dealing with it. However, the moment God decided to step into the problem, step into the story, it became God's problem. And that's where we find our greatest hope, and that's where we find the grand story of salvation. And that's what we've been studying for the past thousands of years, where we have been learning about the great controversy in greater depth. So today we're going to be studying the remarkable theme of how God saves us, how God conducts his rescue mission in the context of this great controversy in which all of us find ourselves. So throughout history, humanity has witnessed, has seen uh, extraordinary acts of redemption, of, of salvation, of people saving or rescuing others from imminent death or dire circumstances and situations where individuals and organizations have gone to great lengths to save other people. One inspiring story comes from uh, Ross Perot. 
who was a billionaire philanthropist and, uh, and politician. Some will remember that he actually ran for uh, presidency um, in the uh, 70s and 80s. Um, maybe some of you will remember that. I wasn't around, so I don't remember it literally, but reading back on history, you find that that was an interesting period of time. However, in 1979, during the Iranian Revolution, two of his employees were held captive in Iran. As the founder of electronic data systems, known as EDS, Perot took it upon himself to organize and to fund a private rescue mission. So he collaborated with um, a retired U.S. Army Special Forces colonel called Arthur D. Bull Simons. And he orchestrated something called Operation Hotfoot. The team disguised themselves as Iranian officials and they successfully extracted their two employees from the prison and that demonstrated Perot's determination in rescuing his employees. Perhaps another remarkable feat, and for this one I was able to find a, uh, a slide, another remarkable feat of, of rescue or of rescuing uh, people unfolded in Chile in the year 2010. And this was known as the Copiapo uh, mining accident. Deep in the San Jose mine, 33 miners found themselves trapped 700 meters, approximately uh, 2,100 feet uh, underground after a cave-in. And they faced insurmountable challenges, including limited food and water, darkness, intense heat reaching up to 104 degrees Fahrenheit, and precar precarious ventilation. You can actually see a little bit of it on the screen here. Um, on the, on the left-hand side, you see precisely where they were, where the first cave-in happened. You can see where uh, the mine initially collapsed. It was a very dire situation that they were in. That first um, um, picture up top, it says, Estamos bien en el refugio. You'll see that Spanish is not my main language, okay? I can understand a little bit of it. Los 33. What it says is that they are safe in the refuge, all 33 of them. And that lower picture on the south, uh, in, the, in the bottom, uh, well, south, you know, uh, east corner, but the bottom uh, right corner is one of the men being rescued. So this was something that took 69 days. After an agonizing 69 days, the successful rescue mission um, took place between October 12 and 13 of 2010. So what happened was that in response to this, uh, this dire situation, a complex rescue operation called Plan B was initiated. It involved dr drilling small boreholes to establish communication and to provide supplies. And it was followed by larger boreholes to create an escape route and deliver provisions as well. They used a specially designed capsule called the Phoenix 2, where each miner was brought to the surface one by one through a narrow barrel, uh, borehole. This entire situation was watched by the whole world who were on the edge of their seats in an awe-inspiring and, uh, awe and incredible feat of engineering and human perseverance that unfolded there. So the Copiapó uh, mining accident is a reminder that rescue missions require collaborative efforts. The Chilean government, mining experts, engineers, international assistants, all played crucial roles in providing assistance and help into rescuing these miners. And so despite immense challenges, their rescue demonstrated the power of unity and the unwavering human spirit. So while all these stories, and, and honestly here, we could actually go into so many different rescue missions that have been witnessed throughout the history of our world, but while all these rescues are awe-inspiring, they're awesome 
to, uh, to study, there's a greater rescue mission unfolding on a cosmic scale. The most significant, the most vital and important, the most awe-inspiring rescue mission in universal history. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, he, uh, he provides an up-close and personal view of God's sweeping efforts to redeem humanity. As the lesson puts it, this grand rescue mission involves us directly. For we are not mere spectators, but we are witnesses of our own salvation. And so throughout the narrative of the great controversy, we understand that humanity is in need of rescue. I mean, all you have to do is look around you and you'll notice that we are in need of rescue. Our world is falling apart. It's breaking. It's demonstrating something is, uh, not something, everything is demonstrating that things have gone awfully wrong. The world is vomiting up its demons to demonstrate that things have gone off the tracks. And so what we see is that God, he, is, he demonstrates his love, he demonstrates his care into, in putting himself into the story personally. It's not difficult to perceive that we are in a dire situation. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul describes our dire situation as being spiritually dead and under the sway of sin. But... The hope here that is provided in this book, especially in this chapter, is that God in infinite love, in infinite mercy, he initiates the rescue mission. He goes out of his way to do something about this. This book reveals that God acts on our behalf, especially chapter 2, as I said. God acts on our behalf. He resurrects us from spiritual death. He lifts us up into heavenly places with Jesus. It's a rescue that's rooted in grace, not on our own worth or our own efforts, or our own, not our own worth, but our own self-perception of worth or the worth of others. This is all based on God's grace. Friends, the ultimate example, the ultimate expression of God's rescue mission is found in Jesus Christ, where we see that heaven emptied itself of its most precious resource in giving us the precious resource, which is Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, especially verse 8 and 9, and we'll get to this in a little while, it emphasizes that our salvation is a gift of grace. It's received through faith. It's not of our own works so that no one can boast. We're going to have a whole day just about this. This is one of the most um, beautiful passages of Scripture. And so just as Ross Perot went to great lengths to save his employees, God went to the greatest lengths to save us. He gave us his only son, as a sacrifice for our sins. The Bible says in John chapter 3, verse 16, that God so loved that he gave. God so loved that he gave. Originally, like I said before, sin was a human problem. But when God stepped in, it became God's problem. But this cosmic rescue mission requires our active participation. We're called to have faith, to stay close to Christ through reading the Bible, through prayer, through active missionary involvement. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, again, we're going to get to these verses. It reminds us that we are God's handiwork, where his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. It couldn't be clearer that this is all God's work. The whole great controversy, the whole salvation story, it's all up to God. We're mere participants. We're not the main part of the story. He is the main character. He's the main one. And that's something that we have to remember. And so as rescued beings, we do have a role to play 
in sharing the good news of salvation and participating in God's ongoing rescue mission. And so while we can absolutely marvel at the amazing rescue stories of human history, we cannot ever forget the grandest, the greatest, the most beautiful, complex, profound rescue mission of all, God's relentless pursuit to seek and to save what had been lost. So through his grace, he rescues us from sin, he lifts us up into heavenly places, and he invites us to participate in his mission. That, that segues us into Sunday's lesson, which has the title, Once Dead and Deceived by Sin. Now, you'll soon understand that the book of Ephesians is regarded as the queen of, pa of the Pauline epistles. It provides insight for the Ephesian Christians living at that time. One of the things that's important for you to do when studying the Bible is always First off, as soon as you read the text, don't jump straight to applying it into your own life. You will go wrong there sometimes. What you have to do first is ask the first basic questions of, um, of exegesis, which is who, what, where, why, when. Who's writing it? To whom is he writing it? Where is he writing it? When is he writing it? Why is he writing it? Right? When is he writing it? So always ask yourself those questions. Here, Paul is writing to these Ephesian Christians that are going through their own situations, and the beauty of the Bible is that there is a transcendence to it. As I read it, while these authors, these human authors, Paul and Luke and Timothy and, um, you know, all the other writers of the Bible, the other authors of the Bible, while these men are writing to specific target audiences, the ultimate author of the Bible is God, and what that means is that the message of this book, it applies to us in several cases. But there are some things that don't apply. There are local situations where we can go to the essence of what, of what is being written and apply that, but you have to be very careful. So here we see that Paul is writing to the Ephesian Christians and believers throughout history. The Ephesian Christians, like all of humanity, have a historical divide into two periods. All of humanity is, humanity is divided into a into B.C. and A.C., before Christ and after Christ. It's true about humanity, it's true about the Ephesians, and it's true about you and me. All of us have a before and an after Christ. These Ephesian Christians, they live in an extremely pagan, an extremely um, polytheistic society, and they had a hard time understanding some aspects of salvation, some aspects of what God was telling them here. Before Christ, they are described as being spiritually dead, trapped in their sins. Have you ever felt trapped in your sins? Have you ever felt like as, as, as hard as you might try, as, as strongly as you might attempt to leave things behind, have you ever felt trapped in your sins? Be those habitual sins, be those um, sins of rebellion or sins that you just, of ignorance where you just forget certain things. All of us, friends, have a before and after Christ. All of us, at one point or another, or dead to our sins, or dead in our sins, trapped, deceived by the devil, two opposing forces that are at work. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we read, and, he, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others." 
So first, what we see here is the course of the world, which encompasses the customs and the behavior that are prevalent in society. That's the first thing that we see here that led these Ephesians astray. But secondly, they were also influenced by external force or unexternal force that's embodied by Satan himself, the prince of the powers of the air, as the text describes him. Satan exerted his power not only in supernatural realms, but also among the sons of disobedience, which is what Paul is talking about here in this text. The Bible testifies, friends, to the existence of evil powers. It refers to Satan as the devil, as the prince of darkness, as the ancient serpent, as a roaring lion ready to devour. The apostle Paul emphasizes that our struggle is not limited to flesh and blood, not limited to the natural realm of things, but it's extended. You remember that parable in the book of Matthew where um, we find that uh, the, the, the servants went out, they sowed the, the field, but then after a while they perceived that um, there, were, there were weeds just along with the, uh, with the wheat. And so when they asked the master, well, who did this? The master answers and he says, an enemy has done this. So what we understand is that ultimately our worst enemies, they're not human enemies. Your worst enemy, it's not your mother-in-law, your father-in-law. It's not your boss at work. It's not, um, you know, someone at school. Your worst enemy is not a flesh and blood. Your worst enemy comes from something else, something that is over, that is supernatural to what we see in the world around us. Paul's message in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, it sheds light on what Jesus has done for us in this context. He contrasts the past sinful experiences that these Ephesians went through, that we all go through in our life, with the blessings of God's salvation, with the fruits of what that produces in our life. And that involves participation in the resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation of Jesus. You find that in chapter 2, verse 4 through 7. The foundation of this salvation is God's grace his creative work in our life. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, Paul emphasizes the sad, we've read that, the sad reality of their pre-conversion state, describing them as being spiritually dead, as we've already stated, living in trespasses and sins and under the dominion of Satan. So although metaphorically dead, and that's what he was alluding to, metaphorically dead, their separation from God was a genuine and desperate condition. It was a very real and non-metaphorical condition. Reflecting on their past lives, Paul identifies two external forces that exerted control over them, which are the two that I've already mentioned. The first force was the course of the world, their environment, everything that happened around them. And that was characterized by the customs, the behaviors that opposed God's original design for human beings, and that led them to rebellion. The second force was Satan himself, referred to as the prince of the power of the air, which can be understood here as the realm of the supernatural powers, including the evil forces and satanic activity that works among uh, the disobedient world that we're surrounding them. So you see that one kind of, there's an overlap between that which is around the environment and the devil working on that environment. These verses reveal the reality of the great controversy between good and evil. But despite this ongoing struggle, we can find comfort and hope in knowing that Jesus emerged victorious because he did live here. He did come down. He did share our fate. Jesus cried our tears. Jesus Jesus, uh, bled our blood. Jesus felt our wounds. Jesus walked in our streets. He died our death. And so he understands. And so our hope comes from the fact that because he lives, 
I can face tomorrow. As the old hymn says, because he lives, we can face tomorrow. We can share in his victory now through the redemptive work that he's done. And we can experience this transformation of being at one point dead in our sins, uh, imprisoned in our trespasses to go into life. As the Bible says, we go from death unto life because of him. And that goes on to Monday's lesson that says, once deluded by our own desires. You see, in the past, we were deceived by our desires, facing both, both external and internal evils. Sometimes I feel like the devil isn't even close by, and we want to blame him for everything that happens. He's not even close by. It's something that comes from us, friends. There's internal temptations, internal evils, and there's external ones that are then, you know, guided and conducted and, 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 and uh, worked by him. But the truth is, is that there is something broken in humanity. If you doubt me, again, I invite you to look at the world around you. There is something broken in humanity. Ellen White highlights that the external evils awaken internal ones, leading the soul into darkness. And so recognizing this, she suggests avoiding anything that stimulates our fallen nature, things that we see, things that we read, things that we hear. You see, without divine intervention, human nature is not only influenced by external influence, uh, forces mentioned by Paul here in Ephesians, but also by internal passions and desires. Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, resonates with this understanding where he said, among whom, among whom who? Those who are disobedient to God. Also we all once conducted ourselves in lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. By nature children of wrath, just as the others. So what this says is, apart from God's intervention, Human existence is dominated not only by external forces, but also by passion, the passions of our own flesh, things that are within us, indulging in the desires of the body and of the mind. So when Paul states that his hearers were once by nature children of wrath, like the rest of humankind, that's very significant. That can't just be glossed over. That's a very significant and profound um, statement. He points here to the reality of the fallen condition of humanity. This is further emphasized in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, where Paul warns us against partaking in the deeds of darkness to avoid God's wrath. The phrase, again, by nature, children of wrath, it reflects the daunting reality that despite bearing the image of God, having been created in the very image of God, there is simply something deeply broken within us. Living the Christian life is not merely about overcoming a few bad habits or sins, but contending with the fundamental condition itself. I find a very great danger in understanding sin as only behavior. You see, the Bible provides 11 words that define sin between the Old and the New Testament. 11 words, and they are not synonyms. You see, sin can be transgression of the law. Of course it can. Right? Active transgression, behavioral transgression. But sin can also be what you don't do. Not only what you do, but things that you do not. You remember the parable of the uh, Good Samaritan. You'll remember that the Levite and the priest, they didn't do anything. They saw him and they passed by. They didn't actively do anything and that was their sin because there they were called to do something. 
So you see that sin is not only something that you do, it can also be something that you do not do, the sins of omission. But more fundamental, more going deeper into the problem, we also understand that sin isn't only what you do or what you don't do, but it's why you do what you do. Because in the book of Romans, you read that everything that does not come from faith is sin. So sin isn't only what you do or what you don't do. Sin is also why you do what you do. It goes down into the depths of motivation. And so anyone that is tempted to think that sin is only behavioral is seriously misleading himself. Sin is a condition we're born with. By nature, children of wrath. That implies that the inclination towards evil is completely, is never on this side, completely eradicated. Now, and that's where you have to, that's where I really want you to understand what I'm saying. Because Paul's exhortation in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, it underscores this, this ongoing struggle against sinful acts that are rooted in the sinful nature. Uh, sinful nature. If you remember Romans chapter 7, that inward battle of the, of the um, inner man that Paul is talking about, where he says that he knows God's law and he wants to practice God's law, but he is a slave to sin, right? He is, he, so there's this constant battle going in within him. Now, there are those who would like to think that that man is the unconverted man, but I beg to differ. I do not believe that the man of, of Romans chapter 7 is the unconverted man, because I'll tell you something. The unconverted man, inside the mind, inside the heart, inside the nature of the unconverted man, there is no, there is no um, struggle or obstacle with, uh, with evil. It's only in the heart of those who are converted to God that there, will find, that there will be a conflict between good and evil. In the hearts of those who are unconverted, there is no struggle. They're already given to sin. There's an echo of sin within them. But in the heart of the converted people, of God's converted children, that's where the Holy Spirit, he fights, he actively struggles against sinful tendencies in the life of his children. So, what you see here is that Paul's exhortation here in Ephesians 4 and 5, it, it, it talks about the struggle, this ongoing struggle against sinful acts that are rooted in the sinful nature. But through the power of Jesus, believers can put off their old selves and put on the new self created in the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. We have all experienced the corruption of our own nature. I mean, how many of us can say that after we're baptized, after we were baptized, we were perfect, holy saints. Can you say that? I know I can't. I was baptized when I was, I think, 11 or 12 years old. The same afternoon, I was blaming my little brother for something that I had done. <laughs> I, I, unfortunately, my little brother was, was uh, the victim of, of that quite a bit. And I remember coming to, you know, thinking about what I had done after and thinking, well, I was baptized today. Did it not work? You see, friends, none of this is magic. None of this just happens from one moment to the next. The path of sanctification is precisely that. It's a path. It's a journey. It doesn't happen in the moment. Justification happens at one moment. But sanctification, it's a lifelong process. And this teaches us the importance of clinging to Christ every moment of our lives. There will not be, never, in the history of our world, on this side of eternity, there will never be a moment where we will not need Jesus. Be careful if you come to that conclusion, that you are upright, and so you need not cling on the master. 
you will always need to pray to him for guidance, for comfort, for strength, for forgiveness. On this side, we will always need Jesus to be our strength. This reminds us of our continual need for his grace, his power, his guidance to overcome the inherent tendencies toward, toward sin and to live in righteousness and holiness. Our dependence on Jesus is vital for the transformation and sanctification of our lives. Now, some may think, well, pastor, what are you saying? Are you saying that we will never be sanctified, that we're going to be forever, you know, here sinning? And No, of course not. That's not what I'm saying. When it comes to sins of rebellion, when it comes to the dissonance between my nature and God's nature, I believe that we are walking towards that state of non-rebellion. When you really look at sin, when you look at the Old Testament word pesha, which is the word for rebellion, that's the sin. That's the one that, that leads to the unforgivable sin. But when we're talking about missing the mark of, of feeling irritated sometimes or, you know, stubbing your toe on the, on the, on the foot of the bed and, and, you know, you're not happy when that happens, the benign aspects of sin. The book of, I believe it's 1 John, it talks about the sin that leads to death and the sin that does not lead unto death. So here we're going down a rabbit hole, but I, I just want you to understand that I'm saying, can you be perfect? Well, it depends on your definition of perfect. I believe so. If perfection is the biblical understanding of perfection, which is wholeness and integrity with our relationship with God. David is described as perfect. How perfect was he? He was perfect. He was whole. He was complete in his relationship with God. When his sin was called out, he altogether submitted and humbled himself. Um, Elijah is called perfect, and yet we find Elijah running away from King, Queen Jezebel after this amazing act of power and of revelation of God's, God's working in his life. He's running away in fear, asking to die. Moses strikes the rock. Noah, um, Noah gets naked and drunk. Um, these are all people that the Bible described as, as perfect. And yet what we find here being described as perfect is in their, in, in their complete and their whole relationship with Christ. Tuesday's lesson has the title, Now Resurrected, ascended and exalted with Christ. God refers to, to our new status in Christ where we share the new condition of our salvation, right? Of our, our new condition after Christ, right? There's the BC, before Christ. There's the AC, after Christ. It's a glorious straight state of existence, of living. Everything becomes new. I mean, I want you to look back. Think about your life um, when you converted, when you came to Jesus, what was it like? I, I don't know about you, but for me, everything was new. Everything was beautiful. It's sad that we lose that first love. I pray the, to the Lord to renew that in my heart every day, but it's, it's a hard walk. You know, friends, the hard thing about salvation, it's not actually being saved. It's remaining. It's staying saved. It's kindling that fire day by day in our heart. But here we we understand that we walk with Christ. We leave behind the old things that have passed away, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Karl Marx also spoke of a new man, emerging from the triumph of the oppressed over the oppressor. But his utopia never came true. He failed to take into account, he failed to consider the power of sin, which cannot be overcome it cannot be overcome by education, by market forces, economic conditions. Only the grace of Jesus. Only the grace of Jesus 
can transform us and elevate us to a new level of existence. The main verse that is mentioned on Tuesday's lesson is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, that says this. Ephesians 2, we're going to read verse 4 and verse 5. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now, what this means is that our transformation and newness of life comes solely through the grace of God not by our own efforts or our own achievements. Think about that. But God being rich in mercy, why would the text say that God, or, 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 or bring to the forefront front God's mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses? Why would it say that if this weren't the case, that it's God's mercy, God's love, it's God doing everything, if that weren't the reality? That means that our transformation, our newness, our new state of being, all things made beautiful and new, are only done so because of him. You see, friends, at the foot of the cross, we find unity in Christ. We share the same hope, the same faith, the same confessions. This is the power of grace. It unites us in the body of Jesus. We can walk with Christ in heavenly places, as the text says, leaving behind our old habits and in base in embracing a new disposition, a new direction, a new connection. Ephesians 2, verse 6, sorry, 2 verse, 2 verse 6 says this. Ephesians 2, verse 6 says this. Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. As believers, we participate in the resurrection, in the ascension in the exaltation of Christ. We are raised up and seated with him in these heavenly places, as the text says, experiencing the transformative power of his victory. What does this mean? This is the constant um, now, but not yet, that the Bible kind of goes between. We experience here and now this transformative power, but not in its plenitude. That will come when Jesus comes back. What does Timothy chapter 2, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 say, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. These verses emphasize that through our union with Jesus, our togetherness with him, we receive the power to overcome fear and live with strength, live with love, live with a sound mind. Friends, through the grace of God, we are transformed in Christ into a new creation. I don't know about you, but that that's, sounds like something that I want. Because I know myself. I know myself all too well. And I want to become a new creation in him. Daily. This is something that happens. It has to happen daily. Constantly. Continually. We leave behind the futile attempts of human systems and ideologies. We recognize that the true transformation and unity can only be found through the power, through the love, through a closeness to him. Our participation in his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, it enables us to walk in heavenly places even though we are here now. So that's where you'll find the, uh, the, this, this duality in, in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, where, where you'll see that, especially in the book of Matthew, you'll see that the second most, um, the, the, sorry, not the second, the first most uh, common thing, the first most uh, repeated thing on the lips of Jesus is what the kingdom of heaven is. 
That is the the biggest topic in the book of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. But what's interesting is that the kingdom of heaven, it doesn't really portray, it doesn't really speak primarily about a location, geography. The kingdom of heaven truly in the Bible has to do with a relationship with the person of the king, closeness to him. Wednesday's lesson leads us to the title, Now Blessed Forever by Grace. Friends, by the grace of God, we share in the death, in the resurrection, and in the ascension, and the glorification of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Because I'll tell you, you know, usually when I, when I hear these, these verses, these words, and I, I kind of start getting confused. It's like they're buzzwords. It's like here, and it's just all over the place, right? What does this actually mean? What does this, how, how, what's the practicality of this? Well, what this means is that it's through his love that he reached out to us while we were still sinners. That's what this is talking about. We share in these qualities of his and his exaltation and his life, and we share in that. We're kind of implanted into that because he loves us. Imagine that you have a very, you know, you have an empty bank account. That's that's not far from my reality, right? But I'm, I'm grateful. God gives me everything that I need, right? But you have a very empty bank account. And, um, you know, that's your life right there. But one day, billionaire, you know, I don't know, an Elon Musk or a Bill Gates or someone that, you know, one of these billionaires, they come to you and they say, we're going to join our bank accounts. And suddenly, that bank account of yours that was empty, well, it's not so empty anymore. You now inherited these billions. That's, That's a way for us to understand what's going on here. We had no merit. Now, you know what, friends? And I'll tell you that um, I don't really like doom preaching. And what do I mean by doom preaching? All right? um, it's very common for you to hear preachers out there just dooming the human family as though it were their fault for the condition that they're in. Friends, no one asked me. Look, no one asked me before I was born if I wanted to be born here, if I wanted to be born on planet Earth, in the context of sin, and if I wanted to deal with this situation. No one asked me. And what that means is that that's not my fault. It's not my fault that I was born here. No one asked me. All right? It wasn't a choice that I was given to be born in this place. The Bible makes it clear that sin is not inherited. You don't inherit the guilt of your parents or your family. Now, while I don't inherit it, it is something that I have to deal with. Imagine, a, you know, a promiscuous young, young lady, and she goes out and sleeps around, and, you know, and she gets pregnant because of her lifestyle. And she also, um, she also gets uh, HIV, AIDS, right? She tests HIV positive. Now, let's say that this baby, it does, it's not always the case that HIV uh, transfers over to the fetus, to the baby, but it does happen. So let's say that in this case, it does transfer over, and the baby, he is HIV positive. Is it his fault? No. But will he have to deal with that condition for the rest of his life? Absolutely, he will. So I don't like the doom preaching of saying, oh, we are miserable and we're bad and we're evil in the sense that it's it's almost as though it's our our fault, right? For our original um, condition. It's not. But we do have to deal with it. And dealing with it is where things become, we, we become guilty. Because dealing with this, it then leads us to rebellion. You don't have to. We do have freedom of choice, but we fall into the trap of sin. 
And so when we say that God rescued us, God freed us, it's in that context, in the context that he didn't have to do something. We were in this miserable, wretched condition, but he stepped into our circle, stepped into our story, and he then decided to do something about it. So that's where his mercy is seen. His mercy is seen that he didn't have to, but he did. He did. Romans chapter 6, verse 5 through 8 demonstrates that perfectly when it says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We have to remember that God's acceptance and love for us is not based on our goodness, but on his goodness, on his grace. So again, connecting this to what I said before, his mercy, his love for us, it's, it's not based on us. It's based on who he is. Isn't that usually how the love of parents is? It's not based on, you know, what the child does or as soon as that baby comes out, he's already loved and cherished. So we have to remember that his love, his acceptance, his reaching out to us, it's based on his love, on his goodness. Psalm, uh, Psalm 17 verse 15 says, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awaken your likeness. Again, I will see your face in, in right, whose righteousness? God's righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Everything has to do with him. God's love and goodness transforms us. It shapes our hearts. It renews our minds to align with his law. God's visit to our planet extended his grace to us, offered us salvation and a place within the Godhead. Now, that might sound kind of weird, huh? What are you saying, Pastor? It, 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 it uh, offered us a place within the Godhead. Well, I'm not saying this. This is in the book of John. John 14, 23 says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make what with him? We will make our home within him. God's promise is that if I accept him, if I accept and live by his word, he will come and live within me. It doesn't say only Jesus. It says my Father will love him, and we will come. We will come, and we will make our home within him. When the Bible says that our body is the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, it's not joking around. Again, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So this is where we see what God is proposing, what he's offering, what he's extending to us. Not only that, but comparing God's plan for salvation in Ephesians chapter 1, with the eternal, resorts, um, the eternal results described in Ephesians chapter 2, we see that essential elements and goals of God's plan of salvation include his immeasurable riches of kindness towards us. Again, look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come. When do you think that's talking about? Only life here in this world? only the history of planet earth no this is talking about the ages to come this is all throughout eternity we will see what look 
I think that it's, it's, it's a very short-sighted thing to think that we can understand all about what's going on in this lifetime, on this side of eternity. We're going to be spending, and look, eternity has become such a, a buzzword. It's difficult. I mean, it's just so hard for us to measure it. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, I believe, that God has placed eternity in the heart of man. Now, that's something hard to, to understand. But I believe that we're going to spend quadrillions, trillions, quadrillions, quintillions of years understanding by the, by the millennia what it actually meant for God to come down to our small planet. This is something that we would do well. Ellen White says that we would do well to meditate an hour a day on what it meant for Christ to come, for him to live here, for him to inhabit this world. There is no depiction that that is worthy of, of, of what this represented. We're talking about the greatest descent in all of universal history. From the throne of God in heaven, surrounded by perfect angels, all the way down to our dark, dirty, confused, sad, little world. We have to remember, friends, that our journey with God, it's not a graduation. The lesson makes this point very clearly. It's not a graduation from grace. We continually, there, or there is no graduation from grace. We continually rely on his grace throughout our lives. We never outgrow our need for it. God's plan extends into the future, demonstrating his unfathomable riches of grace and kindness throughout eternity to come. In the book, The Desired of Ages, page 19 and 20, we read a very beautiful quote. This is what it says. By coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to reveal God both to men and to angels. Our little world is the lesson book of the universe. It will be seen that the glory shining in the face of Jesus is the glory of self-sacrificing love. Look, we can read these words. It's hard to understand it in, in its entirety. The glory shining in the face of Jesus is the glory of self-sacrificing love love. The grace of God displayed through Jesus becomes an everlasting testimony of his love, of his redemption, and it captivates both the redeemed and the unfallen beings throughout the ages and the days of eternity. Now finally, Thursday's lesson, now saved by God. And this is where we reach the, in my opinion, one of the most extraordinary formulas of beauty in the Bible. Ephesians 2, verse 8, which says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Note again the emphasis. Salvation does not occur because we're good, because we deserve anything, because we merit it. There are, there's, the coins of merit, of works, they don't buy salvation. It's solely based on God's inexplicable love and his unmerited favor towards us. It's not achieved by our own works so that no one can boast. That's what the continuation of the text says. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The foundation of faith, of, of, sorry, of, of um, the foundation of salvation, it's grace. It's not even faith. We have to understand that Faith is the instrument. You're not saved by faith. You're saved through faith, but not by faith. 
Salvation is only by grace. Faith is the hand by which we take hold of the gift. Even faith itself is a gift of God. And we have to pray for the Lord to create it in us. You see, faith is like love. Love doesn't depend on me creating feelings of love in myself. It's not a discipline in myself. I need to love. I need to love. Especially, I don't have to force myself to love my wife. I love her naturally. It's something that she awakens in me. It's not something that I have to keep practicing in my mind. I need to love her. I hope that's not what it's like for you. <laughs> love is, is like that. It doesn't depend on your ability of feeling love. It depends on the ability of the other person to suscitate, to create those, those, that, that, that emotion, that feeling, those decisions in your heart. Faith is the same. Faith doesn't depend on your ability of creating faith in yourself. It depends on the ability of God of creating it in you. But you have to be available. You have to be open towards it. If we desire to have faith, we should stay close to Christ, engaging in contact with the word, with prayer, missionary involvement. These three are, are, are the most important things to do um, to, to promote a Christian life because through reading the word, I understand what God is like. I, I, I learn about his personality. Through prayer, I communicate with him. There is no relationship without communication. And through missionary involvement, I share him. It's something that I can do to, to externalize the joy that I feel by working with him and for him. It's through faith, faith, friends, that we are united with Christ and that we share in his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his glorification. We have been transformed by God's grace, not by our own efforts. It's not about what we do. The truth of our salvation being rooted in God's grace and not our own, it's, it's a vital understanding. If I miss out this understanding, I'll miss out on everything else. If I don't understand this simple reality, I will understand nothing else about who God is. It humbles us. It reminds us that we cannot earn or achieve our own salvation, not on our own. It redirects our focus to God's love and to his grace. It leads us to rely completely and solely on him. It prevents us from boasting about how good we are, how great we are. It promotes a spirit of gratitude, an attitude of gratitude and dependence on his mercy. In summary, our salvation, friends, is a gift of God's grace received through faith. It's not based on our good works so that we should not boast, but on God's love and God's mercy. I'd like to finish telling you a story. It's a story that I, I've shared it before, so it might not, you might have heard it before, but it fits so well with this, uh, with this lesson. And the story is about a father and a young boy, his son, um, walking through the Washington Memorial Park. And so they're, they're walking through the beautiful park, and the little boy, he sees the Washington Monument, and he is mesmerized by that huge obelisk, and he finds it a beautiful um, uh, and profound um, uh, example of the American spirit, and he's just, he, he wants it, right? He, he starts coveting it. And so he turns to his daddy and says, Daddy, I want to buy the Washington Monument. And his dad, you know, what do you say? He didn't want to crush his little boy's hopes and dreams or whatever. And, and so he, he looks at his son, but he knows it's an impossibility. And soon enough, they see a, a, a police officer walking, strolling through the park. And so his father has a good idea, and he says, why don't you go ask the police officer that works here if you can buy it? Uh, the little boy had a little silver dollar in his pocket with which he wanted to buy uh, the, the, the monument, right? He had shown it to his dad. Daddy, I want to buy it. And so 
um, he, he marches up to the, to the police officer and he says, hello, Mr. Officer, I want to tell you that I want to buy the Washington Monument. Where can I go about, you know, um, purchasing it? Who do I have to talk to? And so the, the police officer, he turns to the little boy and he says, young man, I have to tell you three things. First of all, first th thing is it's not for sale. You can't buy it. It's not for sale. Secondly, number two, even if you could, with that silver dollar right there, you could never afford it. You could never afford the Washington Monument. But as a son of this country, as a citizen of the United States of America, it's already yours. You can't buy it, or it's not for sale. You can never afford it. It's already yours. That is the truth about God's grace. It's not for sale. You can't, it's, it's, you can't purchase it. Secondly, even if you could, you can never afford it. Not with the coins that we have to offer. Not with our works, not with our merits. We could never afford it. But, but, as children of heaven, whom God died for, whom he gave himself for, whom empty, heaven emptied itself for, it's already yours. All you need to do is through the grasp of faith, Take hold of it and let it change and transform your life. Allow God to change and transform your life through his grace, through his works, through his mercy, through his love. And as the song says, as you turn your eyes on Jesus, the things of this world do grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That is my prayer for you. Um, I'd like to uh, finish this with a word of prayer. So I'd like to invite you to bow your head and pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your gift of grace, for your gift of mercy. Thank you for being who you are. Lord, we, we try. Human, human words are way too limited to try to understand and fathom who you are. Lord, as we contemplate the story of salvation, how you save us, as we've studied it here in this lesson with Ephesians chapter 2, Lord, we are, we are inspired. We are in awe of this entire story. And yet, Lord, we're so limited in comprehension. We don't get all of it. And Lord, that, that's something that we truly look forward to in the days of eternity. Father, I ask you today, allow us to understand your will for our life. Allow us to, by faith, take hold of the gift of grace and allow that to create in us the good works that you have prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Help us not boast, Lord. There's nothing to boast about except in the cross of Christ. I thank you for these things, and I ask these things in the name of Jesus. I ask you, Lord, to live in the hearts and the minds of those watching. Live in them and with them. Make your habitation in, in them. I ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to invite you to take advantage of this free offer. This is a great offer for you to perhaps give to someone maybe a, a, a neighbor, a family member, someone that you would like, perhaps you would like to study with, some, with someone. One of, the, one of the big parts of this lesson is missionary involvement. If I know that God saves me, I also have to extend that salvation to someone, right? So taking the study, you studying it at home, looking up the questions, the Bible verses, cementing it in your mind, allowing this to be at the tip of your tongue when you're asked to explain why you believe in something, all of that goes into sharing this, sharing Jesus with someone. The fact that God saved us has to be extended in the life of his children. So I'd like to invite you to 
take advantage of these free offers. You could, there's so much content out there that you could take advantage of. So if you would like this one right here, I'd like to invite you. This one is called Saved from Certain Death. I'd like to invite you to call the number 866-788-3966. You could ask for offer number 109. Um, again, this is only mailed in North America. So if you live outside of North America and you're unable to receive um, a, a physical copy, you could text uh, SH060 to the number 40544, and you would get then a text with a digital download with a link where you could go and you could uh, download it. But again, this is only if you lived in continental North America. If you live outside of North America, you could still go to the Amazing Facts website. It's study.aftv.org, and then you put slash SH060, and then you'll find there a digital download for this lesson and for several others where you can also share with your family members, share with your friends. You could study it yourself. You could become more knowledgeable on all this, and I'm sure that God will then uh, bless you to be an instrument in, in his hands of grace, salvation, and love. So don't forget to take advantage of these free offers. I'm sure that they will be a blessing to you, to your family. You can share them, study them. That will help the Lord, um, not help the Lord, but it will help you become an instrument in his hands of love, of grace, of salvation as well. We hope to see you again here next time for another Sabbath School Study Hour. Don't forget to request today's life-changing free resource. Not only can you receive this free gift in the mail, you can download a digital copy straight to your computer or mobile device. To get your digital copy of today's free gift, simply text the keyword on your screen to 40544 or visit the web address shown on your screen. And be sure to select the digital download option on the request page. It's now easier than ever for you to study God's Word with amazing facts wherever and whenever you want. And most important, to share it with others.